Father, we're so thankful that we're born again in Christ and that we have the opportunity to know your word, to study your word, and to enter into your great salvation as your church. Father, encourage our hearts this morning as we study deeper and further about our Lord Jesus and the conclusion of his earthly ministry and the days of preparation and the hours of preparation heading into the cruel cross that we've just sung about. That amazing love that compelled him, that humble obedience whereby he surrendered to you his Father's will. May we model ourselves after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I was thinking about the old days, that is uh, the 1960s, when I was a little boy, and I was thinking about how we didn't have cool kids programs in our church. And in fact, on Wednesday night, there was essentially nothing for kids, and so I grew up through my elementary years attending adult prayer meeting, traditional old adult prayer meeting. You sing a couple hymns, you had a little Bible study, and then the men split up from the women, and you had long prayer time, and the boys went with the men. And you know what I can remember about that? One thing is I learned how to pray. Another thing is I remember in the 60s, a regular prayer in our churches was for the persecuted church particularly behind the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. We regularly prayed in our Wednesday night back in those little basement church Sunday school classrooms. We prayed for believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. We would not know until we get to heaven who were being persecuted for following Christ. Being hated for Christ or being persecuted for Christ is kind of a foreign concept to us. And I can remember regularly hearing stories like the one I want to read to you right now um, that is just a book of testimonies about those who've been persecuted. And this one comes from the 1950s. And it came from a, a country that's very much in the news today, North Korea, a pastor named Pastor Kim and his congregation were so oppressed in the 1950s for the gospel of Jesus Christ that they dug in underground into tunnels. And uh, Pastor Kim had about 27 members to his flock. And they would slip into these tunnels both to avoid persecution on a regular basis and hide and also to worship. Then one day, the communists were building a road And they broke through part of the tunnel that Pastor Kim and his congregation had dug as an underground hiding place, and they were discovered. As the story goes, the officials brought them out before a crowd of 30,000 in the village of Gaksan for a public trial and execution. They were told, deny Christ or you will die. And they refused to deny Christ. 
It was at this point that the account goes that the head communist officer ordered four children from the group seized and had them prepared for hanging. With ropes tied around their small necks, the officer again commanded the parents to deny Christ. Now, one of the believers would deny their faith. They told the children, we will soon see you in heaven. It's partly why we sang about heaven today. The children died quietly. The officer then called for a steamroller to be brought in. He forced the Christians to lie down on the ground in its path. As its engine revved, they were given one last chance to recant their faith in Jesus. Again, they refused. As the steamroller began to inch forward, the Christians began to sing a song that they had often sung together. By the way, uh, the accounts, historically speaking, clear back to Fox's Book of Martyrs, and other sources often give testimony, and in the Middle Ages as well, often give testimony of Christian martyrs that as they die, they died singing hymns. You better get a few hymns memorized and in your head. As the steamroller began to inch forward, the Christians began to sing a song they had often sung together. As their bones and bodies were crushed under the pressure of the massive rollers, their lips uttered the words... More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Thee alone I seek. More love to thee. Let sorrow do its work. More love to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. The execution was then reported in the North Korean press at that time as an act of suppressing superstition. So let me ask you a question this morning. Why do people hate Jesus? What in the world is that all about? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26... For years now, we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew. It has been delightful. Every sermon has been excellent and insightful. You can tell Janet's not in the early service, can't you? And as we wind down, you of course know where we are. We are heading to the cross. We are hours away. Judas has betrayed him. And it is time for trial. I almost went the direction in my introduction of hate crimes. Interesting how the word hate has been attached to crime these days. I don't know of much crime that isn't generated by some level of hate. I guess alcohol does a lot of it and they don't even think about what they're doing. If ever there was a hate crime, you could actually title this sermon the ultimate hate crime, I think. Uh, But I've entitled it Jesus Haters because what we see in our text today, and it's an extensive text, and it's important, it would be good for you to read Luke's account and Mark's account, John's account. We'll not have time for all of that. But as we try to just kind of get our, wrap our minds around the trial of Jesus, and remember that it was in uh, four different parts. Um... Matthew doesn't record, only John records that they went to the house of Annas. And there they had a preliminary hearing. They moved from there across the courtyard, evidently, to the, to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. Uh, 
So there was part A and part B of the trial of Jesus with the high priests there. In the dark of night, after they had taken him from the Garden of Gethsemane, where we were recently. Remember that the Jewish people at this time in Israel was under Roman authority and rule. Now, Rome was the kind of um, oppressor and conqueror that was sort of a benevolent dictator. Rome would put their governors over these regions that they had conquered, and they essentially conquered the whole known world of the day. But they would let people function as long as they got their tax money and as long as the people didn't fuss too much. But they kind of controlled some of the law. And the Jewish high priests had been given a long rope of authority by Rome to keep the Jews and handle them. They were corrupt with Rome, the Jewish high priests, religious leaders who were the de facto political leaders of the day. They were corrupt and engaged with Rome in behind back, back room talks and things. And as long as the high priest kept the people calm or happy, Rome pretty much didn't care what they did. However, the high priest needed Rome's permission to execute. And so what you have then is you have them moving from Caiaphas's house in the second phase of what would be part, we would think of it as the religious trial end of it. They then moved to Pilate, who then moved to Herod, and then back to Pilate, and then Pilate reneges and gives him over to the people to be crucified in a trade for Barabbas. We'll see a little bit of that today. So it was two parts religious and two parts political, and then he's on the cross. It's just kind of interesting to think it through. You can't really see this in any one of the Gospels. You have to put all the Gospels together to see it unfold in its order. Well, we have to be careful not to bog down with... Uh, the limited time that we have to study together. Uh, if you have your notes hand, handy, it will help you. I've given uh, the heading of our points here as we break down the passages we read in just a minute, the trial travesty of the ages, because this was an incredible travesty of justice. There was absolutely no account by which Jesus could be convicted of any crime. We know that, don't we? And yet they convicted him of capital punishment, for capital punishment, and executed him. Let's read our text this morning together. I'll uh, just read, you follow along. We begin in Matthew 26. And, um, and so, if you let your eyes go up on the page, or the page before, we have this section where Jesus has prayed in Gethsemane. The disciples have gone to sleep on him. And then the betrayal of Jesus, which we included in a previous message, particularly focused on Peter's denial of Christ. And then we are at verse 57, the new passage for us today, where my Bible entitles this section, Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. Caiaphas was the high priest of that day, a very powerful religious political leader. Let's read together Matthew 26. You follow along verse 57. Let's try to take in what's happening. And then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. These are all religious leaders. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. 
but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? Speaking to Jesus, What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Sort of a paraphrase of the book of Daniel. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? We had picked up before the next section, which is further information on the denial of Peter. And we pick up our text today at at chapter 27, verse 1. And when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Let's let our eyes skip over the section on Judas, and let's go to verse 11. We'll pick that up later. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of the governor, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. And so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. We'll stop there. Hmm. What I thought we would do with this passage is just break it down and look at at least seven different ways that it was a travesty of justice. And the first one is that it was absolutely irrational. 
It was absolutely irrational. Now, let's just step back and let's just consider all of what we've studied in the Gospel of Matthew. And you tell me, who who is greater than Jesus? Who has done more good than Jesus? Who has been more kind to women than Jesus? Who has been more uh, benevolent to children than Jesus? Who has been more gracious and loving to the brokenhearted and to the broken-bodied than Jesus? Who has been a greater source of provision than Jesus as he breaks the bread and feeds the multitudes? And so you have to stop and think to yourself, you say, what in the world is going on here? Why would anybody kill Jesus? He's absolutely the perfect man. He absolutely did no wrong. He never even backtalked his mother. And yet, these high religious leaders absolutely hated him and were able even to turn the crowd's attitude against him. Many, no doubt, whom he had fed. Many whom had connections and neighbors and had been healed, perhaps. And had seen it all happen. And there they are, one week screaming for him to be their new king, the next week screaming for Barabbas, destroy him, they said, with this mob mentality. So why would anyone want to harm Jesus? Why did they hate Jesus? I would suggest, letter A, that they were jealous of his popularity. We read that in 2718, didn't we? It says there under, when Pilate was dealing with them, uh, he knew that it was out of envy, 2718, that they had delivered him up. Just one little indicator, and we won't have time to build all of the arguments here, but as we study in the Gospels, we recognize that they, they loathe Jesus, these high priests, Because he was a more popular teacher than they. Because he was the one who, when he spoke, he spoke with an authority that amazed the crowds. And the crowds went to sleep when they spoke. So one reason was they just didn't like the guy. They were envious of him. We also know that they did not recognize his divine authority. They did not recognize his divine authority In fact, let's just, since we're in Matthew right there, let's just flip to chapter 12 and remind ourselves. And what I was doing was just uh, giving a few points of support. And you can just argue over and over and over again on these things. And I'm sure that the list is even longer. But in Matthew 12, uh, verses 23 and 24, uh, for example, uh, we have here uh, the demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. And they brought him to Jesus and he healed him. And then all the people were amazed and they said, can, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. I mean, just think about this. He just did the most wonderful thing that anybody has ever seen that no man could ever do and no one has ever repeated. And they look at him and they say, you're of the devil, Beelzebul. They just refused to recognize his divine authority. Thirdly, they refused to acknowledge his unique identity. They refused to recognize his unique identity. We don't have to turn to Luke, but um, this is the passage where Jesus, early on in his ministry, is in the temple. He opens up the scroll, turns to Isaiah, and and it talks about uh, the prophetic fulfillment of Messiah being in their presence. He rolls up the scroll, stands up, and he says, Today, these scriptures are fulfilled in your presence. In other words, that, that right there that Isaiah wrote, that's talking about me. 
And it says that they were so angry, they tried to grab him and throw him off a cliff. They simply did not believe it. They didn't see it. They refused to acknowledge his remarkable, unique identity of being deity. Fourthly, he called them out on their hypocrisy, didn't he? And way back in the Sermon on the Mount, it started in the book of Matthew. You don't have to turn there, but over and over and over and over again, he confronted them. Uh, Matthew 6, he's talking about how they prayed in public only in front of the eyes of men, that everything about them was external, everything internal was rot, that they were, that they were pits, snake pits, and, and that they were tombs, whited sepulchers, filled with dead bones on the inside, all show on the outside and full of rot on the inside, and they loathed him for his repeated left hook, right jab, poke in the eye for their hypocrisy. And they couldn't stand his guts. So it's absolutely irrational, but what I want you to see next, though, in the story, I mean, that says we look at the story at large, it's absolutely irrational that you would kill or murder or execute Jesus. He is the absolute last person in all of history that ever would deserve execution. Secondly, it was blatantly artificial, this travesty of justice was. It was, this is a trial that is absolutely a hollow shell. I mean, there was absolutely no evidence. There were no fingerprints, no gloves that fit or didn't fit, no shoe prints on the concrete. There was nothing, no threads of cloth that the microscope found that you were indeed in that car. There's just no evidence whatsoever. And so look what happens. They begin uh, to manipulate. It was, first of all, letter A, it was manipulated. So let's reread 59 and 60. Take a look at 26, 59 and 60. Look what it says. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. And so look at it. Matthew writes that they all knew that they were seeking false testimony. They were rigging the trial on purpose. They actually knew it was false testimony. But look at how difficult. So they, so they are manipulating the evidence. And then it says they were seeking false testimony that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So letter B is that it was all baseless. They could find no evidence. Now take just a minute and turn to Mark 14, because it's really interesting to compare these passages. So look at Mark 14, verses 55 to 59. And I think you'll find this just really fascinating. This is Mark's account. Now Mark says in, in chapter 14, verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So that's what Matthew wrote as well. But look what Mark adds. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. So some then stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple and that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, look at verse 15. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Back to Matthew. So it was contradictory. 
Letter C, it was contradictory. So as they put together this charade of a trial, we find that it was manipulated, it was baseless, and it was contradictory, and yet it moved forward with great enthusiasm. And this would have been 24-7 coverage on all of our cable outlets, wouldn't it? You talk about, I mean, the only thing missing is like a white Bronco and helicopter ride over the whole thing. It's just unbelievable. Thirdly, it was obviously hypocritical. Look at verses 61 to 66. So they put these guys together. They misrepresent Jesus' words. They didn't even quote him correctly. So they finally get these two guys to say, he said he was going to tear down the temple and, re- and that he could rebuild it. But he said he was going to tear it down. I'm not sure that Jesus actually said he was going to tear it down. But he said, if you destroy this temple... And he would rebuild it in three days. So it was against, it was a capital offense to desecrate a temple in Israel. So they finally got something that they could get some leverage on. That if this guy says he's going to desecrate one of our temples and by tearing it down, that would be desecration of a temple. That is a capital offense. We can kill this guy. So what you need to understand is that from the very beginning, early on in his ministry, we we won't take time to repeat that or review that, but as we've studied, we've seen on different occasions where they sought to kill him. Now I referenced a minute ago when he stood up in Luke 4 and he read out of the scroll and he said, today this is all fulfilled in me. They wanted to throw him off a cliff that day. But they regularly plotted to kill him. What you need to understand is that they could not lay a finger on him until he was ready to fulfill God's plan to be the ultimate sacrificial lamb to go to the cross and give himself up for our sin. This is part of the plan. They were puppets. They didn't know it. So it's kind of interesting. But look how hypocritical it is. Caiaphas, of all people, always only wanted to kill him no matter what. So Caiaphas jumps up. When the two came forward in verse 60 and then verse 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest, Caiaphas, stood up and he says, have you no answer to make? And he's pointing at Jesus right here. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Another one of our points could be about Jesus this morning is that it was prophetic fulfillment of what was going on here. Clearly, And Isaiah 53 says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter in silence. And he answered them not. It was in silence. It was in prophetic fulfillment to what the prophets had written about exactly how he would do. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I beg of you, by the living God. Now he's calling down God's oath. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. In just a minute... Um, uh, somewhere in here, I will point out, um, under, under Roman numeral 5, and keep this in mind right here, because I might forget to reference it, is, the, is the, how unlawful this whole trial was. And right there is an incident where they are trying to get him to self-incriminate, and it was against Jewish law for self-incrimination to, to take uh, up a capital offense. So you could not self-incriminate yourself and be executed. And the... And the The high priest right here is trying to get Jesus to self-incriminate against the very rules that they have for their own justice system. But Jesus remained silent, verse 63, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, 
Finally, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming. The next time, oh buddy, that you're going to see me, you're going to see me like you've never seen me before. And then, Caiaphas, the high priest, tore his robe. It was not lawful for a high priest to tear his robes. Then the high priest tore his robes. So what I think he's doing here, I said, letter Roman number three, it was obviously hypocritical. Caiaphas, Caiaphas was posturing and acting as though he was outraged over the dishonor of God's name. So for Jesus to sit there and say, I am the son of God, puts him at an equal plane of the same DNA. I am of the same substance as God was blasphemy. So what they're going to execute and get this in your mind, what they end up executing Jesus over is blasphemy. That's what they got him on. Okay. It's, it's ironic. They're the ones who were blasphemous. He's the one who is God and they kill him for blasphemy. You talk about a contradiction. It's just unbelievable. But what Caiaphas does now is he gets up and he just play acts. Everybody there knew that Caiaphas wanted to kill him no matter what. Everybody knew. They had all been in backroom meetings. They had all been talking. It was their number one source of conversation as they drank their coffee and smoked cigars. All they wanted to do was kill this guy. They hated this guy. And so Caiaphas now is acting like this pious high priest. Oh, you've offended the name of my holy God. And he tears his robes for emphasis. What he's trying to do is get them all to just step over the line and say, yeah, let's just kill him. And it pretty much works. And they're trying to get, he pretends to be uh, outraged over dishonor of God's name, but it was pure, purely disingenuous. It's, it's just hypocritical. These guys are hypocritical to the core. If they didn't have double standards, they would have no standards at all. And so it was also horribly disgraceful. Horribly disgraceful. Now look what happens in verse 67 and 68. And then they spit in his face. They struck him. And some slapped him. And saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Matthew did not include the detail that they had blindfolded him. Uh, other gospel accounts tell us that they blindfolded him. Some Bible students speculate that by this time his eyes were so swollen from being beaten around the head that he couldn't see anyway. And you just think about it. Our precious and lovely Lord Jesus. And these dirt bags are spitting on him. They're slapping him with their hands, an open hand. It was a disgraceful act. It was so demeaning. It would have been more meaningful and manly had they made a fist and punched him in the mouth. But this and the mockery. And you just feel in that short verse, don't you? Just the disgrace of the whole thing. It was, as I reference uh, Roman numeral 5, thoroughly unlawful. Um, what triggers that thought is when we pick up at 27, 1 and 2, that when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So there's, there's at least 10 or 12 ways that this trial is unlawful according to their law and according to Old Testament law. And um, it's interesting, however, 
I believe that at some level, the, the high priest did have an ability to suspend the rules for himself. Um, kind of reminds you of a group of leaders that we know about 70 miles east of here. Anytime they don't like the rules, they just suspend the rules. So it was thoroughly unlawful. A few examples of this according to Jewish law. Letter A, no trial for life, okay, where the life was on the line, it was capital. No trial for life was allowed to take place during the night. You weren't, you weren't to deal with these serious matters in the middle of the night like this. I think at some level it was to protect from tar and feather groups, you know. It was uh, for uh, influencing in the fatigue, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. You can get some people riled up about stuff. And so it was unlawful to do it at night like that. Capital punishment, another example, is that capital punishment cases were not to be held during the Feast of Passover. And here they are holding a trial during the Feast of Passover, breaking their own rules. Another one that I pointed out earlier was that self-incrimination was not convictable. And uh, there's, it's just interesting how they break their own rules. We'll just let it go at that. Roman numeral six. This whole thing is clearly political. It's clearly political, politically influenced. I don't have subpoints on that, but what you ha- what you see is as we read the account of Pilate, and then bringing Jesus to Pilate, what happens? Pilate exonerates him. Pilate says, "I find no fault in this guy. <laughs> the evidence that you have brought me, it's no good." So they take it actually to a higher court. The higher court throws it out. The people go crazy, raving, nutso mad in the streets. And Pilate immediately backs up and says, okay, you can do with him what you want. That's all they needed to hear. So the political leader who held the power to say, you cannot kill this man, succumbs to political pressure of the man in the street. And he says, okay, do it. His wife comes to him and says, don't you have anything to do with this guy? I have been plagued by this dream. I'm telling you, do not, do not touch this guy. And Pilate evidently, like Pastor Van, has learned that anytime he goes against a strong warning of his wife, it never goes well. (laughs) It never goes well. How about you guys out there? If your wife warns you about something and tells you you better watch out for something, and you say, nah, (laughs) she's always right. She's always right. And, and Pilate, evidently, this resonates, you know. So he play acts. What a, what a politician. He gets a bowl of water and he gets a towel and he goes out on his balcony and he washes his hands in a public symbolic way so that everybody can see. Peace, love, dove. I have nothing to do with this guy. But you may have him. And so it is politically influenced. It had nothing to do with justice whatsoever. But I want you to see, Roman numeral 7, that it was genuinely hateful. Genuinely hateful. Um, And just look at these high priests, 2720. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. So notice that they have influenced the crowd now. And they asked for Barabbas to ask for Barabbas. And I I don't know if I ever saw the phrase before. 
In the ESV it says, and to destroy Jesus. They were so filled with hate, they wanted to destroy the Savior of the world. They wanted to ruin that which could save them from their ruin. It's incredible. And so the chief priests were murderous. The crowds were bloodthirsty. Look at 22. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? And you get the highest court in the land essentially saying, He's not guilty. Why are you doing this? And they foamed at the mouth and they shouted and they screamed and they rolled their eyes back in their heads. They gestured. They jammed the courtyard and they screamed, let him be crucified. Why do people hate Jesus? What did did he do to them? What did he ever do to them? Give us Barabbas! Barabbas was a horrible criminal, a rapist and a murderer. Give us Barabbas! So the crowd was just, by this time, bloodthirsty. And the soldiers, this about makes you weep. I stopped reading at 26, now pick it up at 27. So then the soldiers of the governor, so Pilate's soldiers were charged with the execution. They took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So now he's not in the public eye. He's back in a back courtyard and the whole battalion of Roman soldiers is there, these guards, and they stripped him. And there's our Lord naked. They put this scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and then they put it on his head and then they put a reed in his right hand, like, a, like a, a rod of a ruler. And then kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they grabbed the reed out of his hand and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put a, his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. They break your heart, you know? This precious Lord Jesus, who only loved the people and only benefited the neighborhood, these dirty, lice-infested soldiers get up in his face and spit in his face. And what does our Lord do? He just sits there. He just gets beat up. He already told his own disciples, I could call legions of angels from heaven if I wanted to. You see, what's happening here is the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. And the ultimate sacrificial lamb is being destroyed, is being slaughtered, so that his blood would flow, so that the sin of the world, the penalty would be paid through him, the only perfect man that ever lived, the only one that would qualify before the judge of heaven to say, yes, you can stand in their place. And so this is where you have to understand that God, through Christ, did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the gospel message, that we are sinners and we have no ability to save ourselves. 
You can think you're pretty good, but you're not good enough to get into God's heaven. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So it's like, no matter how, you know, no matter how really white you think your whites are, when you put them up against white, you see that they're still yellow. You're not good enough. And, and as in Adam, people all die. And so God provides the second Adam, Jesus, to say, okay, I will take their place. And every parking ticket and every murder and every bad thing and every backhand and every cuss word and every sin they ever did, just credit it to my account. He goes on the cross, pays the price, his blood flows. And then by God's sovereign plan of salvation from then on, sinners who are willing to admit their sinfulness and repent of their sin, can go to the cross and can bow before God in Christ and they can accept this finished work. In the week or two, we'll have a message on the crucifixion. And there, the spotless Lamb of God was slaughtered for sins He didn't do. And you have to understand that to become a child of God. You can't become a child of God any other way than looking to the cross, looking to Jesus and accepting his finished work for yourself. And that is an act of faith. And salvation is only by faith, the New Testament teaches. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then you're saved. That's it. You can't work your way. You can't roller skate your way. You can't do nothing. Just look to Jesus and live. That's your job that you have to do right now. So let's conclude with just a few thoughts. Why do people hate Jesus today? We're about out of time. Let me just fill in the blanks for you. It's fairly self-explanatory. It is evidence, number one, it is evidence of an unseen, never-ending spiritual conflict between God and Satan that begins at the beginning of the book in Genesis 3. So what you need to understand is that there is a reality, this side of heaven, that Satan is orchestrating an antichrist movement always. Always. God and Satan are in conflict, and Jesus is the manifestation of God on earth. And so Satan does everything he can to turn against Christ. He even replaces him with fat guys in red suits and rabbits that lay chocolate eggs. There's just all kinds of ways that he defrauds Christ. It is one of the natural reactions of evil hearts when encountering righteous character. Acts 7.54 is a testimony of Peter preaching. And, they, and he's preaching and he confronts them of their sin and that they crucified Jesus. And they rush him, gnashing their teeth. They hate him. Anytime, anytime evil hearts encounter righteous character, they just turn ugly. Lately, I've talked to a couple of our young men who've been in Marine Corps basic training, and they didn't do anything wrong, and they've been, they have been brutally, brutally abused for doing nothing. Just because somebody figured out that they are a Christian. They made a mockery. How come? Especially when there's a crowd watching, there's always somebody with an evil heart who's willing to mock a Christ follower. It's just in their nature. You just have to understand that. Evil hearts, when encouraging righteous character, always naturally react in hate. Thirdly, it is one of the ongoing strategies of Satan to eradicate the influence of the gospel. 
Even more specifically than number one, number three is that the gospel message that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only hope of all people everywhere to destroy that message. The serpent is biting the heel all the time, but the heel will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3 is where it starts. Number four, the exclusive claims of Christ are often a source of animosity. The exclusive claims of Christ are often a source of animosity. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, you need to add the Y to the B there, by which we must be saved. By which we must be saved. See, you can talk about God in general terms till the cows come home and you won't upset anybody. You start talking about Jesus Christ, Him crucified, buried, risen, coming again, and the only way of salvation, and they will run you out of here on a rail. People hate exclusive claims of Christ, that there is only one gospel, there is only one road, and it's a narrow road, few there be that find it. Number five, lovers of sin despise the convicting power of Christ. Lovers of sin despise... John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds or works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Add the T there. Doing my own work here. That's terrible. Lest his works should be exposed. Lest his works should be exposed. Evil people just hate the light. Isn't that something? So Jesus said in John 15, beginning with verse 18, keep in mind that if the world hates you, it hated me first. So will you stand with me and uh, let's just bow our heads and let's just thank God for the finished work of Christ and let's ask Him to help us to never be ashamed of His gospel or His name. And so Father, we thank You for this remarkable story and the humility that Christ showed the one who spoke the worlds into existence, being spit on by those he created. And he did it out of a humble obedience to you to fulfill your will. He did it out of a love for us that we cannot explain. And I thank you for our great salvation in Christ, and I pray that you would help us never, ever, ever, ever to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.